the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Forward Together podcast. This is episode six of Forward Together. My name is Jared Dean and I'm joined by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm fine, Jared. Good stuff. Right. So this is our series of interviews with people from broader civil society and local politicians, a series of forward-focused conversations looking at the future and how we might address some of the big issues. And we hope that this will become a vehicle to help support that conversation to take place. So, Paul, today we're hearing from Mark Durgan. And Mark is the former leader of the SDLP, former Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland, also, of course, long-time MP for Foyle Constituency. Hmm. And a day or two after this interview was uh, recorded, he announced that he was going to be the Fianna Gael candidate for Dublin for the European elections. Right. So, really interesting past and current position for Mark. Mark talked about where the contributions that civil society has made during the peace process and how that was really important in supporting the political process, but it also uh, demonstrated to politicians the benefit of partnership working uh, as evidence through the delivery of the various peace funds. But Mark also talked about the civic forum and the potential that it had, but also how it was actually rolled out. Yeah, and he's very strongly, very firmly making the point that the Civic Forum did not collapse. Mm. It was, you know, a victim of the suspension of the institutions. And Mark's view very firmly is that it should still be in place. It should not have ended its life. And uh, it's an interesting view. I mean, clearly we do need, as, as Mark says, you know, we need ways in which civil society still has a voice and that we need to, you know, design ways in which we have a, a, a shared society. And, you know, he's pointing forward the, the argument that uh, we need a whole community approach uh, to, to, to make progress. And, of course, the other thing which Mark stresses, which is very significant, is that basically the Eames-Bradley uh, process for dealing with uh, the past and the legacies, uh, that still, in his view, remains the template that, uh, that we should use. Mm, OK, well, let's hear from Mark now. I'm joined now by Mark Durkin, who is the former leader of the SDLP and former MP for the Foyle constituency. Mark, thank you very much for agreeing to do this. I want to start by asking, how do we strengthen civil society in ways that enable us to make progress? Well, I think we need to recognise, first of all, that civil society has made significant contributions during the life of our peace process. Some of us in politics, yes, like to think that all that we did within the political process uh, is maybe the uh, the sum total or the significant end of what has happened. But civil society here uh, has made quite a contribution. We've, we saw that at different times, whenever during the talks process that led to the agreement, uh, where there were doubts or there were stalls, we saw uh, different groups in civil society in the form of what was then dubbed the, the G8, coming forward with very positive uh, messages. Uh, Mo Molum, as Secretary of State, clearly uh, engage civil society very uh, strongly as a positive pressure point uh, on the uh, political parties. Uh, and of course, we also were hearing from civil society through that period uh, the benefits of partnership working uh, that were already manifesting itself through the way in which EU funds were being used, often with quite innovative local delivery mechanisms and intermediary funding bodies that were bringing people together of very different backgrounds uh, in. Uh, in new models uh, of partnership, in new ways, uh, and that we're delivering things. And so there was a certain, uh, there were certain practical lessons and experiences 
uh, for people there that were, that were reaching into politics as well because some of those uh, local partnerships involved uh, local councillors, ex-prisoners, others, you know, people who maybe wouldn't have been uh, sitting in the same room or around the same table uh, on other things. So we need to look at what our, when we're talking about uh, civil society, we're not just talking about you know, a list of, of, of people who might obviously be invited to an NIO reception uh, or whatever. We're talking about people who uh, are engaged in the here and now, in their own neighbourhoods, in uh, everyday uh, ways. And when we negotiated the agreement, of course, one of the reasons why we uh, had a civic forum uh, as part of the institutions uh, was because we wanted to continue uh, to harness that value and that insight uh, and indeed, I can remember talking about how you know a body like the Civic Forum could be used as uh, as the outriders to cut through some of the challenging and the structural policy issues uh, that we would have to face. That maybe that uh, you know the formal government system, you know, of civil service papers and maybe stilted stances from parties maybe wouldn't cut through some of these issues, not least on community relations uh, and some of the other uh, issues that the Civic Forum. Uh, could play a lead role and of course we wanted to see not just the Civic Forum in the North but also the Consultative uh, Forum uh, for North-South bodies as well, again because we thought that uh, civil society uh, representatives, the different sectoral voices would be able to come forward with authentic ideas for North-South cooperation uh, that people wouldn't see this as North-South 3 for its own sake which was the kind of criticism uh, that many unionists had of some of our ideas for North-South cooperation. So we were saying, well, uh, if your argument for North-South is that these have to be practical measures uh, of mutual uh, benefit uh, and not an artifice for its own sake, well, having uh, this sort of level of civil engagement where you have the real sectoral players in there means that there will be credibility uh, around some of these proposals and uh, ideas that they will be practical so you don't have to worry that you're being sucked in uh, to some political uh, agenda. And even in recent times, uh, in the course of, of Brexit. Again, we have seen uh, you know, that significant moment where some of the sectoral voices uh, came through and said, no matter about our politics our, and our members' politics, no matter about the politics of different parties, it's the economy stupid uh, that needs to be uh, looked at. Uh, and so there is a, a strong sense there that uh, civil society uh, has uh, a voice that uh, isn't always uh, heard, uh, that sometimes doesn't always voice itself. Uh, either and so we need to make sure that uh, if we go forward with restoration of institutions as I want to see we need to make a priority of not just restoring uh, the civic forum but also looking to, to uh, other uh, mechanisms some of those that have maybe been run down a bit uh, as we've seen some of the European funding tail off uh, or whatever because uh, what you find is many groups who have made positive contributions in the past and have been uh, innovative and reshaping how some things are done and how some things are seen and said uh, in our society. Uh, some of those groups uh, essentially uh, have found themselves uh, falling away as more and more of their time uh, is spent on trying to secure core funding for themselves. But the Civic Forum has collapsed and presumably the main parties would not agree to it being reconstituted in the future. So what's the alternative? What's your proposal for a, a civic forum of some kind up with a different name in the future? Yeah, well, well, first of all, the civic forum didn't collapse. The civic forum uh, became a casualty of suspension. There was nothing in the agreement that said it, it should be uh, 
a, a casualty of uh, suspension and some of us argued at the time that the Civic Forum uh, should uh, be maintained even though the Assembly was suspended and then the North-South Ministerial Council was deemed to be suspended as well and the North-South bodies were put into care uh, and maintenance. And then it was some people then felt, well, if that's happened to the North-South bodies, then the Civic Forum uh, should be parked uh, as well. Uh, I believed that the, the Civic Forum uh, was already engaged in some good work and indeed just before suspension uh, the plan had been, I had got David Trimble to agree that in publishing the Harbison Review, uh, which was looking at some of the community relations challenges, uh, that we that the Civic Forum uh, would take uh, a key lead in helping to, to frame and lead uh, that public uh, debate. Uh, and indeed that experience of the Harbison Review was, was interesting because it was commissioned by Seamus Mallon and David Trimble uh, and it was received. Uh, but then uh, it couldn't be published because David Trimble uh, felt that a phrase that was in uh, the Harbison uh, review uh, about a shared society would be neuralgic uh, for uh, unionism. And, and all that the Harbison review uh, was saying was putting up the challenge that the executive were going to have to work out uh, that we want to create uh, a shared society. Was that going to be... A working policy goal was that going to inform how budgets and how services were planned uh, and aligned for the future or were we prepared to do things on a binary basis more back to back and, and continuing uh, the sort of patterns uh, that society here already knew and in my discussions with uh, David Trimble when he didn't want this to be uh, published and it's not as though the executive would have been taking full ownership of every last word of the Harbison Review it was this particular concern around um, shared society and my view was well uh, if a leader of a unionist party is telling us that even the phrase shared society uh, was going to cause such a negative reaction from unionists that was all the more reason why we needed a public debate that was all the more reason why we needed uh, to frame understanding around these issues and this went on for uh, a long time and he had talked about no what we needed instead uh, was not publishing documents, what we needed was funds, what we needed was patronage. Uh, that's going to be under the First and Deputy First Minister to deal with community relations type issues. And I remember saying at the time, he was talking about a riot-driven uh, slush fund, uh, a sort of a similar criticism which has emerged uh, more recently in relation to, uh, to SIF uh, and the way in which it operated. But what we got to at that point uh, in September uh, of '02 was an understanding that uh, we would publish uh, a broad paper for consultation, uh, that the Harbison Review as submitted to uh, the executive would be published alongside that, but that before we would uh, launch those papers, we would have engagement ourselves with the trade unions, with the churches and others with a view to framing debate. But the idea was that the Civic Forum was actually going to lead a lot of the uh, discussion and follow through on a lot of the excellent questions that Jeremy Harbison had put. So you're saying there needs to be a public debate about uh, civil society, the role of civil society, how we create a shared society, but I'm not quite clear, given that the Civic Forum doesn't meet and there's no prospect of it meeting, what your suggestion is about how that public debate should take place. And presumably it takes place beyond simply the, the existing structural organisations of religion well, and trade unions within civil society. Yeah, well, and, and we, I suppose we have the... Uh, experience uh, since then of seeing citizens assemblies and operations in uh, a number uh, of places uh, not least uh, in the south so 
it maybe might be a case of you're looking at a, a civic forum model on the on the basis of sort of variable geometry uh, that it might be different according to to different issues uh, that who's there that you're not maybe just you know as the original civic forum drawn up a list of you know so many people uh, but remember the original terms for the civic forum were going to be that the civic forum itself was then going to cast the model for what the future of the civic forum uh, was going to be so the agreement only uh, give you the means of uh, establishing the first civic forum with uh, the future plans to be drawn up uh, by that forum itself and, and I'm sure that would have been done on a fairly open and consultative uh, basis. So uh, yes we can look to trying to refix or restore you know something along the lines of the original civic forum but I think even if we do that uh, that could be complemented by or indeed that could commission uh, various citizens assembly because uh, one of the because one of the risks with the civic forum is that basically it it becomes a a representative body of the main political parties rather than actually taking people from from broader society and and what you're saying is that uh, citizens assemblies through randomized but proportionate elementation of different people from different backgrounds could be a more representative way of engaging civic society um, yes and and because we want to make sure that they, they work in a way that uh, that brings forward uh, ideas and can and can challenge as well I mean the uh, original civic forum obviously wasn't particularly uh, party political uh, in a sense but that was because of the way in which it was set up there's suppose there's a danger that it can end up drifting uh, in that sort of way over time but remember that's why the forum had as its own mandate that it would design uh, that it would come forward with the recommendations as to what the future shape of the forum uh, should be. But the fact is we have uh, we know that there are a number of serious uh, challenges uh, that are facing us uh, in terms of the structure of our public uh, services, uh, in terms of the shape of our uh, economy. Uh, and those are challenges that were there before Brexit. They're now compounded. Uh, even more uh, by Brexit and of course how far we take our economy uh, on an all-island uh, basis which somebody like me believes is to the good uh, but obviously uh, many unionists are suspicious of and wary of and of course Brexit and its fallout can be a complicating factor uh, there so there uh, and politics can be quite uh, brittle uh, around trying to deal with some uh, of those issues whereas uh, maybe where you allow some of the more sectoral uh, insights uh, shape things and style public policy uh, in a way and point to you know the different instruments that can be uh, used and often can point to examples from elsewhere that can sometimes be received more utterly here than if they come from one political party uh, or another. Uh, there's an awful lot that we can be uh, taking uh, from uh, civil society if they are given uh, that sort of uh, platform. Of course, the other side of that is civil society needs to believe that there actually is a system of government that is going to take up and work with those ideas. So that's one of the building blocks for the future. Beyond that, how do we move towards a more genuinely shared and integrated society? Well, a few years ago, there were in the talks that uh, took place uh, at the time we had the series of rolling resignations by the DUP after the uh, after two murders uh, and we had that instability uh, and obviously a lot of the focus was on the ARA and that the provisional ARA still exists etc etc. Uh, the SDLP put in a paper to those talks which was about the need to create, the need to have a whole community approach 
to creating a wholesome society. And we were saying that you know the uh, a wholesome society would be one that would be uh, free uh, of a lot of the things that mark our society: the legacy of sectarianism, uh, division, uh, all the traces and vestiges of paramilitarism, and all the derivative. Uh, distortions of criminality and other things associated with uh, paramilitarism. That if we're going to create that sort of wholesome society, it needed a whole community approach. That it's not enough for parties to be pointing to things like paramilitarism uh, or sectarianism in somebody else's constituency, but not confronting them uh, in uh, your own. Uh, that it's not enough for us to say it's just down to police to deal with some of these manifestations, and often then you would have political parties. You know, criticising the police for maybe not intervening in relation to uh, a flag uh, dispute and then criticising them for intervening or having a presence, say, when it was uh, a funeral uh, that had maybe some uh, paramilitary uh, elements at it. So we were making the point then that, you know, the political process was giving very conflicting signals uh, to the community and indeed to, to the police in that sense. So rather than you know, putting these things up to each other. It was a matter of us maybe sitting down together. And, and we, in that paper, had put forward uh, the idea that this was going to be longer-term work, that, yes, needed a united uh, commitment, not just from the executive, but we said from all the parties, because we were conscious that at that stage you could have some parties moving into more of an opposition uh, mode. So we were saying there still needed to be this cross-party mandate. But we had also uh, proposed, in, in essence, that there was what people might call a civic society, uh, element as well in terms of oversight uh, and review and actually tracking uh, where we making progress uh, in overcoming these vestiges rather than constantly recycling them and just saying oh well people have changed the language uh, that they're using but we still really have the same traces of sectarianism and division uh, in our society or we're still uh, sustaining the vestiges of paramilitarism but we're just uh, happier that they're in a better managed uh, context. But has there ever been a genuine commitment by the Northern Ireland Executive to creating a shared and, uh, and integrated society? Uh, well, it, first of all, it's what I hoped we would have been getting to back in 2002 after the, uh, if we ever had that consultation on the uh, Harbison uh, review. And, and I'd hoped it was going to be more than a consultation because it, it really was going to challenge us uh, into what type of uh, society. Uh, we wanted and where we're going to really front load uh, some of this thinking into how uh, we do things or are we just going to manage the divisions that we have inherited uh, and, and, and work in that sort of way. Uh, so it, it is something that uh, needs to be done and it wouldn't be just for the uh, executive which is one of the reasons why back uh, in the previous round of talks that i mentioned we were conscious about saying it should be all of the parties. Uh, and not just the executive, you know, that people, because you didn't want to create a situation then where uh, people who went on the executive were somehow deemed to be disowning their responsibility uh, for uh, changing the character uh, of our society in uh, a positive way, uh, or just simply criticising the executive and the parties in it uh, for the lack of any uh, progress. So we believe that that was a commitment that uh, should be there on a, an all-party uh, basis, but also we didn't see it as confined to parties, which is why we were building in this other element uh, of uh, review where civil society would be there uh, with party representatives as well. As essentially, in you know, going uh, through, uh, hopefully not anything as bland as you know a dashboard readout uh, or anything, but actually monitoring uh, progress. Are we actually 
uh, changing uh, society and how we do things as a society uh, or not? Or, as I say, are we just finding new ways of replicating the traditional debates? So having just gone back to the future in terms of the Harbinson review, I suspect we're about to do the same with Eames Bradley, actually, because <laughs> the next question then is how do we deal with the past in ways that don't inflame the present? Uh, yeah, and that's a, a, another um, huge uh, challenge. And again, uh, the parties came uh, close to grappling uh, with that uh, in the uh, Haas uh, talks. Uh, I don't think you know what emerged in Haas uh, was actually you know as good uh, as uh, Eames Bradley, and certainly you know the later papers in Haas weren't as good as some of the kind of the middle papers. So I would say Haas five or six was probably better uh, than. Uh, Haas 7, but we, we came uh, to a point where uh, there, there was uh, some uh, acknowledgement of ways of dealing with the past. Also, of course, Haas was looking at, at other issues as well in terms of parades and some uh, identity matters uh, too. Uh, but the fact is, uh, we didn't get uh, agreement there and we're still locked uh, in this way where uh, different parties uh, are saying different things at different times, uh, you know. So you will hear some parties, uh, in one context, say draw a line line under the past, don't be looking at anything in the past, and then in the next breath, they're demanding inquiries or certain things or demanding pursuit uh, of certain issues and and, and, and files to be published, uh, etc. So you're getting some of these contradictory uh, tendencies from uh, from parties, which again, you know, confuses and disperses uh, people. Uh, I don't think we can just simply draw a line onto the past, but it's how do we create the situation where we don't endlessly pour uh, over uh, the past, but we don't glibly pass over the past uh, either, because uh, the past is still leaves a very real sense uh, of grievance uh, for people, and it's not just those people who are directly affected or who carry from uh, their own injury or their own uh, bereavement, but also as a society, these questions of the past throw up issues uh, about distrust and accountability and evasion that actually affect people's attitude to current uh, politics and to current political players uh, as well. So uh, we shouldn't pretend that, oh, the past is another place and we're concentrated on the new place we're going to uh, that is the future. So w we do have to have ways of doing that. Eames Bradley uh, pointed out that it wouldn't be a case of one size uh, fits all. Recognise something that I you know, had long argued that people have different needs in terms of acknowledgement, uh, remembrance, uh, accountability uh, or uh, justice. And we should have measures for dealing with the past that uh, facilitate those uh, in different ways. So we know some people basically just want uh, the truth uh, to be told. Because remember, there's some victims uh, of the troubles who, for whom uh, you know, the official record uh, still uh, suggests that they somehow contributed uh, to uh, their death or holds them under some uh, sort of suspicion or whatever. And you can't just say, well, forget about that uh, or just have one uh, statement. Uh, things need to be uh, corrected, including uh, even in terms of Hansard, because often a lot of these false versions of what happened to people were described uh, in the records of Hansard. And uh, because a lot of people have forgotten about or not addressed some of these incidents and the troubles, it's still those false versions uh, of records that stand in Hansard, which is one of the reasons why a number of years ago when I was still in uh, Westminster and it was just at the start of the Haas process, I had proposed an amendment to a bill that was then going through 
uh, that would have meant that there would have been uh, an effort on the past that would mean that depending on what came out of the different uh, past review mechanisms uh, that there would be uh, annual uh, reports with corrections uh, to anything that was falsely uh, on the record in terms of uh, Hansard treatment uh, of those sorts of events. So I, I do think we have to uh, address and, and deal with the past in a meaningful way and parties have to stop uh, the politicking uh, around it where as I say, parties at, at times have quite a different emphasis uh, in relation to different aspects of the past. Sometimes they're all for dealing with the past, other times they seem to be trying to run away from it and, and blaming other people. So we need to recognise that dealing with the past is both contentious and dangerous for the current politics, but equally, or perhaps even more so, talking about the future is clearly an issue of uh, uh, significance in terms of how we deal with it. So how do we have the constitutional conversation in ways that don't inflame the present? Oh. <laughs> Uh, there's going to be no perfect uh, way because, uh, as as we know in Northern Ireland, you, you know even a most uh, civil conversation uh, can invite somebody to say they they are being needled or provoked by the terms uh, of that conversation uh, that somebody will react to even the language that is used they will either find language too too neutral uh, for their taste or too pointed uh, for uh, for their taste. So I, I I don't know that there's going to be a perfect. Uh, way to uh, have it as an entirely steady state uh, conversation but that's the nature of the territory uh, that we deal with where where, where even language uh, can be uh, contentious in, in terms of nomenclature, vocabulary uh, or whatever but we need to uh, to work those things through. Uh, in a way we, what we should be doing is going back to uh, I suppose the, the Good Friday Agreement and say well if we uh, all agreed that while we have different constitutional aspirations, we can be part of shared institutions. Uh, we can uh, give uh, allegiance to institutions which we can regard as uh, legitimate because for unionists they're supported by a majority of people in Northern Ireland, for nationalists they've been mandated by a majority of people in the island uh, of Ireland. Uh, and if we've agreed that we can uh, pursue our constitutional choices alongside being in that shared democratic engagement, we need to say, well, if we thought that was going to work for us before, why can't we make it work uh, for us uh, again? Uh, I mean, the reasons that things have broken down uh, aren't because those uh, structures are inherently uh, unworkable uh, uh, in that sense. It's not because uh, we can't actually live with uh, our differences. We can. Uh, live with their differences and in fact we want to create a situation where rather than being afraid uh, of those differences we can be uh, honest and honourable about them, we can respect each other because what we need to do is get to a position where we can have uh, an honest debate about honest differences over honest preferences as to whether it's United Kingdom or United Ireland uh, is the best context uh, for us and one where we get back to maybe moving away from the politics of mutual attrition that nationalism and unionism were locked in uh, for decades, more to the politics of mutual assurance where unionism uh, is trying to say about uh, how good the status quo of Northern Ireland with Pershing and say the United Kingdom is uh, for people in Northern Ireland and therefore nationalists might be have less appetite for United Ireland and meanwhile we're nationalists are saying uh, how good 
the shared institutions within an agreed Ireland uh, are working and therefore that should assure unionists that they had, didn't have uh, anything to fear from a united Ireland and that the more we're doing on an all-island economy basis uh, shows that there's uh, economic sense uh, to this and not just an old political score uh, to uh, be settled. So, you know, I actually think going back to, you know, properly using the logic and methodology uh, of uh, the Good Friday uh, Agreement uh, in ways that uh, maybe, you know, don't hide uh, the constitutional differences uh, in the way that they are, or just play them out in the clunky way they're played at election time, but actually do it as a genuine debate, or as you call it, a constitutional conversation. And the part of that is, if I interpret what you're saying correctly, it's about inverting the current implications of politics, which is that it's to both Unis and Republicans' advantage to make Northern Ireland economically work and socially work, because that way you can persuade people of the benefits of the UK if you're a unionist, but equally you can persuade people in the South and the North that they'll be better off in the United Ireland if you're a Republican straight nationalist. Um, yes, I mean, in some ways it's a bit like the Europe debate, you know, uh, some people come to it, you know, as natural Eurosceptics, other people uh, come to it as natural Europhiles and you kind of think, well, things will go one way according to what you believe. And in a sense, that's going to be true. Uh, of uh, unionists and nationalists. A lot of unionists will have uh, a certain assumption that if things work, that's to the good of reinforcing the status quo that they like. Uh, and for nationalists, the assumption uh, will be, uh, you know, in this, you know, this way that, you know, it's often said that unionists tend to be deductive, nationalists tend to be inductive, that nationalists think, well, if things work, uh, that points uh, in the direction of that progress, so we should go further in that uh, direction of travel. And so those might be honest, uh, predispositions, but at some point uh, they, 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 they come to points of, of, of balance and acknowledgement and there will be uh, a point of choice in the future. And so uh, it is uh, my belief that those people who regard themselves as self-confident uh, unionists can work through the methodology and structures uh, of the Good Friday Agreement and if they show uh, the sort of tolerance and respect uh, for others that the agreement's meant to show, they can state this quite inclusive vision of the United Kingdom and they can make their arguments as to the economic stability of Northern Ireland in the context of the United Kingdom. Uh, conversely, uh, nationalists uh, can point to the success uh, of self-determination within our own devolved structures and within North-South uh, arrangements and structures and obviously the more in which we can develop those and advertise uh, the sense and benefits. Uh, of the all-island economy, uh, we can say that points uh, to the better sense of uh, more of an all-island polity uh, than we uh, already have. And then there will be other people who will say, well, just keep what we have and, uh, and that's fine and just keep the concentration on the economy uh, and on making sure we improve public services, not just within the north but on a north-south uh, basis. Uh, you know, so people will have uh, they're different choices, but as long as people feel uh, fully respected in pursuing and promoting those choices, I think that's uh, important to think you have a problem whenever people create a tension uh, or a sense of tension around even if you talk about a United Ireland or even if you talk about a particular constitutional preference, that somehow you are subverting uh, the sensitive uh, arrangements of the Good Friday Agreement. The agreement was about saying there were legitimate aspirations. So those legitimate aspirations have to be able to, to properly uh, express themselves. And of course, those who hold them uh, can do that responsibly. Okay, uh, really 
interesting and insightful conversation there with Mark. Uh, so, Paul, what I found interesting as well is like we touched on Eames Bradley just before we heard from Mark, uh, but it has referenced a we cannot pass over the past. I think that was that was something that was really interesting. And also that, you know, although he's talking about Eames Bradley as a template, he's, he's saying that, you know, different people have different experiences and those different experiences mean that we need different approaches to their individual circumstances. So, you know, for some people, it's not so much about trying to seek justice through the courts. It's more that they're trying to seek justice by learning what happened. And, you know, you've got an unhealed wound if you're being blamed for something, your family is being blamed for something, when actually, in your view, that is not the actual uh, series of events that cause someone to to die or to be injured. Mm. So Mark's very firmly of the view that we, we need to have the truth. We need to have organisations, including the British state, recognising what happened and to put the record right where it's been wrong in the past, including yeah. his points out and of course he's a former MP you know including the Hansard record of official uh, conversation in in uh, Parliament yeah. you know that Hansard needs to be corrected where people have been wrongly uh, defamed in in Parliament uh, where there's no other you know remedy available to them in terms of um, getting that the name of their loved one cleared yeah. when they've been unfairly blamed for something which they did not do yeah Mark also talks about the need to stop politicking. He uses his word about the past as well. Yeah, we, we, we need to find ways in which, you know, all these things become less contentious. Mm. You know, we're talking about people who've died, talking about uh, people who are badly traumatised, badly physically injured. And, and we need to deal with these things on a more human level. Um, and so, you know, whatever our differences in terms of our, our approach to the constitutional solutions, we need to find ways that recognise that we're dealing with individual people, yeah. you know, who are dealing with real pain, both physical and mental. Okay. Well, I think recognising the humanity in all of us is a good point to, to end this episode. Um, so thank you to Mark for taking the time. Thank you to Paul as well for uh, carrying out the interview. And look out for future episodes. Talk to you soon. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.